Welcome to the Todd DeVos Show, exploring the best ideas and lessons for leaders. Good morning, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you are at in this fine world. And well, today we're going to get into risk and, and what it means and intelligent risk. And and, and uh, I, I think it's one of those things that we, we really have to think about, right? Because that's the business that we're in. Uh, as emergency managers, it's not just uh, about responding. It's also taking a look at the risk assessment, doing thyroids and all that kind of stuff like that uh, to, make, to help make decisions. And so I brought in today one of the uh, experts in that field, uh, James Green. James, welcome to the show. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me. Whenever someone calls me an expert, I always feel like I'm getting set up. So, <laughs> but I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Well, yeah, you know the the, the definition of an expert. If you know five percent more than everybody else in the room, so I think that's uh, given uh, the fact I'm the only one in this room. I think I'm. <laughs> I'm. It's me and my cats down the hall. So I think. I think Boom, I got nailed it. Lockdown. Take it, cat. I'm the risk expert. What is risk? What is intelligent risk? So most people look at the word risk as a bad thing. And most organizations, whether it's public sector or private sector, emergency management or business continuity, it's things you can't do. And when it comes to life safety, I totally get there's a lot of things we can't do. That makes sense. But for me, intelligent risk are what are the things you can do? Can we make risk to be a good word? Are there risks that you should be taking? So, I mean, every day you, you make decisions, right? I yep. mean, you get into a car, that's a risk. You, you, you know, you, you, you eat something, you could potentially choke on it. That's a risk. I mean, so we, we, we make decisions based upon what we're willing to, to risk, right? Yeah. Um, and some people obviously have a higher threshold than, than others. Um, but when we're making organizational decisions, what, is it, what does it mean to, to really assess those risks and make uh, wise choices? So a lot of organizations, if they do risk assessments, they have a risk appetite, right? So here's how much I'm willing to risk. And they never come anywhere near that number. So I was working with one organization and they said, hey, every time we launch a new project that could be potentially a new product line. We are willing to risk up to $100,000 before we say after that, we should shut it down. But when I was working with them the last three years, they had only spent up to $5,000 before they shut projects down. And so I said, hey, you're only taking 5% of the risk that you said you could take. And as a result of that, the number of uh, products that are reaching the market is much lower than you want it to be. So I work with that organization. You need to be taking more risk based on your risk appetite. I'm not telling you to get out of your own comfort zone, but you've established most organizations and most people establish a comfort zone and here's those limits. And then they go nowhere near those limits. So I encourage organizations. I encourage people like you set these parameters and guidelines for a reason. You should get up to those maximum more risk means more reward so if we take a look at somebody like elon musk right i, I think he's uh, a, a great example of somebody who's willing to do um to go to the extremes if you will you know uh, and it's rewarded for him right i mean he's, he's the richest person in the world right now um and he's you know throwing rockets at the uh you know at mars um what makes the difference between someone like him 
right? Who's willing to make those risks? And let's even go somebody who's who's just as wealthy, like somebody I don't know, um, like Warren Buffett, for instance, who uh, has a different risk tolerance. Like, why? What's the difference between those two guys when they make decisions? I think if you look at Elon Musk, his risk appetite is that he's willing to risk it all. So the the current acquisition of Twitter that he's trying to unwind, uh, he's now suing them. They're now suing him. Best case scenario for him now is he has to pay a billion dollars to walk away. That's his best case scenario. Now, worst case scenario, he has to buy Twitter and you know leverage his entire fortune of $44 billion to do that. So I think if you look at Warren Buffett, historically, his risk appetite is much smaller. And I think most organizations and peoples should be, you shouldn't risk everything you have. Uh, that's basically gambling. Right. And I think that's what Elon Musk does that, that allows you, like you said, to flow, uh, fling rockets at Mars. But then the downside of that is you might have a $44 billion albatross that you now own that you don't want. Right. So. Yeah, and, and, and Twitter definitely is that that, that albatross for sure. I mean, according to everything I'm reading, it seems like uh, it was, it's a poor investment at, at, at best, right? Yeah, at, 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 and that's his best case scenario. So I think most of us want to be somewhere between Elon Musk, very aggressive, and Warren Buffett, extremely conservative. There's most of us, I think, are going to fall, and most of our organizations are going to fall somewhere in between those those polar extremes. And, and to be clear, I mean Warren Buffett's been very successful in his uh, in what he's done. I mean, obviously he's a, a very wealthy man in his own right um, in, in the investments that he's he's chosen to do. So um, I guess it depends on where you're at on that scale of, of of where you want to be comfortable, right? Exactly. And I think Warren Buffett, uh, one of the things I love about him and Berkshire Hathaway, they are willing to admit when the risk they've taken is not going the way they want it to. And he has no problem, and Berkshire Hathaway has no problem dumping an investment if it's not going the way that they do. Quite often, people get emotionally attached to their risk. You have to be willing to walk away if you say, okay, I had these guidelines, these, and I, now I'm getting really close to them. Now it's time for me to just, just cut. You know what I find interesting, too, about them is, is some of the – if you take a look at their portfolio, they're all over the place. I mean, from Geico to Dairy Queen to, you know, big, big companies and small companies. Um, uh, so it, they definitely are somebody who, if you want to model risk of taking uh, – they they're there. So let's, let's move this over into um, disaster response, all right, disaster management, if you will. Um, what risks – should we be looking at or should we be willing to take when it comes to like disaster response? You know, so I first got thinking about this a couple of years ago and I was working with a small financial institution and analyzing the amount of money they spent on risk mitigation. And so this was a small financial institution. I think they had 30 equivalent bank branches and they had a security armed security guard in every single branch. And they weren't in high crime areas or a part of the world where you would expect that. So I asked them, I said, hey, why do you have, you're paying, you know, 30 people, $50,000 plus uh, benefits. Why are you doing that? And then, and the CEO said, well, five years ago, we had a robbery and the person ran off with $5,000. And so I said, okay, you're way over mitigating 
this risk. 30 people at $50,000 plus benefits to mitigate a risk that happened one time for $5,000. Who cares? Let that happen. Uh, so I think what we can do in disaster recovery and business continuity, there's certain acceptable risk that I don't think we do a good job. The cost to mitigate that risk is more than the risk itself. And again, I'm not talking about life safety issues, but sometimes if if, if, uh, if the building is worth $50,000 and to put in you know, certain detection methods are going to cost $500,000, just know your strategy should be, we're not going to rebuild. Right. And that's an acceptable strategy. I think companies are, are uncomfortable with just saying our strategy will be to walk away because the cost is too high. And people tend to understand that when we look at personal levels. I have, I told you before we went on the air, I have two teenage sons. They're 16 and 17. Uh, God help everyone around them on the roads. They drive an older car that we have. That, and I've held that car forever specifically for them to drive it. That car is worth $2,500. If they get into an accident, I'm not paying to repair that car. The repair costs are going to be worth more than the car. Right. I'm just going to walk away. And I think organizations sometimes with those smaller items like those security guards when you're not having a threat or uh, certain things, you should just, your strategy should just be, we're going to put our money elsewhere and we'll stamp that as a total loss if anything happens. So, excuse me. So, we so take a look. I mean, again, there's there's life safety issues and we're not going to really go down that rabbit hole because, I mean, yeah. that's, that makes sense, right? I mean, you have to do what you have to do to make sure that people aren't going to be hurt or, or, or die uh, to these things. But um, when you take a look at, at uh, investing in, in certain areas as, as an organization and whether it's government and or private sector, um, how do you assess like where to build? We were talking about this before we got on the air a little bit um, about some of the coastal erosion issues that are happening across the country um, and where banks or insurance companies um, aren't insuring uh, those risks, which are creating that either people with lots of capital can build there or uh, or they have to buy out. Um, how do you assess that as a, as a community of whether you want to have people building in certain areas or not? I think, th I think the first thing you have to do is just have an honest conversation about the climate may be changing where you are. The weather may be changing where you are due to global reasons due to, if you look at um, the hurricanes that happened in Houston, right? You had a lot of building and removal of wetlands that areas that were previously not threatened got destroyed. <clears throat> and companies and communities need to recognize there are changing factors happening. And again, do we want to fortify here or do we want to rebuild here or do we want to move? Uh, I have one global client right now that's proactively looking at where their locations are around the world. Where do they think water levels are going to be 10 years from now, and they're starting to move um, those offices. And we've historically seen that politically. A lot of companies proactively moved businesses out of England when there was, and the UK when there was the Brexit discussion. So they were proactive about that. And I think we need to be proactive about where your base now might be underwater or might be more prone to flooding or storms or whatever. And so your two options are you know, dig in and fortify 
or start to transition and move. Yeah, it's kind of funny because we have both extremes, right? We have one side where, you know, you have flooding happening. Uh, Miami, for instance, um, is is working hard uh, not to to sink into the ocean. And then on the other side, you have like Arizona, California, Nevada, um, where, you know, the water tables have gone so low uh, that you can't even get drinking water out of the ground. Um, And and so now, you know, what do you do there? Is is there a different um, assessment process that an organization needs to do compared to flooding, compared to drought? I mean, or is it should be, or is it similar? I I think it's different. I think the mistake a lot of organization makes is they have a facility level risk assessment and they look at every facility the same. What's the likelihood of flood? What's the likelihood of fire? But to your point, I'm, I'm based in Tampa, Florida. You're based in California. We need to spend more time and attention at those most likely risk and not just put it as a percentage. Uh, if you're in Miami, you are going to have flooding. If you're in Northern California, it seems right now you are going to have fires. So I think where I think companies miss is they look at all risks the same and they allocate dollars and resources to mitigation the same. And you should be putting where your highest risk are is that are most critical to the organization is where you need to be putting your most uh, time and, and resources. When you help an organization assess risk, what's the first step that you take? Uh, honestly, I ask the I ask everyone what keeps you up at night, because I found with questionnaire questionnaires are great to um, get data intake. Questionnaires are great to standardize intake, but I've always found when I ask people what keeps you up at night, that's when I find all this stuff, all the risks that we should actually be mitigating. Um, And some of that's cultural too. I work in parts of the world where they will answer your question out of respect and will not volunteer information outside of that. So uh, there's, there's certain places in the world where I say, Hey, is there flooding? They would say no, but they wouldn't volunteer that the roof is off the building. (laughs) So, you know, just out of respect. So I like to just ask people what keeps you up at night. Um, And that's a great place to start. Because not only do you gather that data, but if five people tell me the exact same thing keeps them up at night, I don't care what the risk assessment says. I know critically that's their biggest risk. People know their organization, their community better than anyone. So I like to I like to start with that that question. How far down do you share this information in the organization? Is it something that should be kept at the C-suite and they kind of make decisions there? Or should this be widely disseminated to, you know, all the employees and, and members of the organization? I mean, personally, I would love for it to go all the way down, but I find it's uh, it varies based on the organization's culture. There's some companies that kind of rule by fiat and the people in the C-suite never leave the C-suite. And unfortunately, they don't care what anyone else's opinions are, but the most effective organizations I work with know, like I have a manufacturing client, they know that the person who works on the floor knows more about any risk than anyone else. And so they really, they go bottom up approach. So if I had my way, there's no information that would be secret when it comes to risk. Yeah. I always think of when you're doing a, when you're doing a facility assessment, 
find the person who has all the keys on their side because they're going to yes. know everything about maintenance, that maintenance, janitorial. <laughs> like you said, I look for that's so great that you said that whoever has the biggest key ring knows where all the skeletons are, know where, where all the risks are. And that's the person I want to spend the most time with. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. When it comes to C-suite, uh, sometimes, um, you know, they, 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 I don't want to say they're, I don't want to say that they are uh, their heads in the sand necessarily, but um, they're, they're definitely um, aren't at the same level as the guy who knows like, Oh yeah, don't step on that grate because that's the one that always falls in. Right. You know, like, yeah. That's, yeah. Um, how do you get that communication going up then the chain? Right. I mean, how do you get that for the person who, you know, is the, um, the maintenance guy who, you know, sometimes is looked at as being the, uh, the lowest member of the team, which I think is a, a very poor assessment. Um, but going up to the, uh, the, to the CEO of the company. How do you get that communication line um, open? Yeah, like I said, the first thing is I look at is there are there communication lines open for that organization in general? Outside of risk, is information, how is information shared? Is it always top down? Is there any room for bottom up? Do things go through HR? Like what's the, how do things work? How does your business run day to day? And then you start with that and you try to, augment that. I think where a lot of risk professionals fail is they try to radically change the culture of an organization overnight. There's too much resistance and pushback on that. So I typically start with uh, life safety because that is, no one's going to disagree on who cares if people die or get injured. That's a great way. I don't care where you are in an organization, what aspect you are, that is a great commonality. Um, so for a lot of organizations, we'll start with something simple like a fire drill or a tornado drill. And and that's very simplistic, but there's never any objections to life safety. So if I have if I have where I have poor communication or no cultural risk, I'm gonna start with life safety and then kind of grow from there. That process takes time, but it's better than you know, I've seen people jump in and expect every department to devote 25% of their time to business continuity and risk reduction and EHS. And those people are usually asked to leave within a year. So, right. Yeah, I, I find that interesting too. Sometimes I, I feel organizations don't don't really want to know what their risks are. You know, when it comes to when it comes to uh, uh, risk assessment, and and once they find out the bad news, they they, they tend to uh, uh, turn that off. How do we change that culture? Um, and and I know that like Brock Long talked about this a while ago, um, the idea of culture preparedness, mm-hmm. uh, culture readiness. Um, you know, we see that kind of idea hitting um, uh, the general public when it comes to, you, you know, some of the campaigns that they're doing. Um, NFL, MLB, uh, both have done some stuff here in, in California uh, when it comes to preparedness. But how do we change that culture uh, when it comes to the C-suite not wanting to hear bad news? I think it's happening now, the last two years, you know, prior to, I don't want to be that guy that says COVID changed everything, but I'm going to say COVID changed everything. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, is prior to 2020, the biggest challenge I would have with C-suites is they would say, you know, James, we've been in business for 40 years. Nothing's ever happened. Or mm. we had a fire and we mitigated it and we lost $3. So who cares? And what's happened since COVID, everybody has been affected 
in some way, shape or form. And, and if you're watching right now and your business wasn't affected at all, I want to talk to you. But I think everyone's thinking has changed. I was working with a very well-known retail chain in March of 2020. And they said, all right, we have a plan. All of our, our back office, you know, white collar jobs are, are going to work from home. And I said, okay, what are we doing at the store level? And their head of risk got really mad and was like, are you an idiot? And I was like, what? And they're like, we will never, ever close our stores. That's the dumbest thing anyone's ever said to me. And two weeks later, they had to close their stores. And so now you have people at the executive level, um, you know, realizing that just doing the bare minimum, having a BC plan that you update every three years didn't cut it. So if you can't convince uh, executive management that, you need to be more resilient now. Honestly, I don't think you ever right. will. Look at everything that's happened, Todd, the last two years. We've had a global pandemic. We've had wildfires. We've had civil unrest. We've had, <laughs> you know, we have a war in Europe. We have a ship stuck sideways in the, in the <laughs> like pick, pick one of these 20 things that seem ridiculous. They've all happened. Uh, I haven't spoken to an executive level person for quite a while now where they've said to me, well, nothing's ever happened here. I think it's funny when we, when we do uh training exercises and we put like a ridiculous, according to people, you know, this ridiculous uh, uh, scenario up and people go, ah, you know, that, that would never happen. And then I don't think that, now it's happened. that yeah, I don't think that that will ever come out of anybody's uh, uh, mouth again. That will never happen um, because man, if we could think about it, uh, it, it, it will, it would happen. I mean, like who would ever have thought, Hey, you know, we're gonna have two, you know, jetliners, you know, smash into the World Trade Center. Uh, you know, why, why would you exercise that? Because, and now, now we, we, we know it could happen. Yeah. You know, so uh, same thing with COVID. I had the same very similar conversation uh, prior to COVID um, with the school that I was uh, working with, and um, I was talking to them about putting all their cl- courses online. Even just, I was thinking earthquake. To be honest with you, I wasn't thinking pandemic, right? <clears throat> And um, I said, if there's a time when, you know, you can't get students back into uh, the classroom and the vice president of instruction was just like, well, you know, we're going to have so much pushback and this is ridiculous. We're never going to have a time when we're going to be closed for more than a couple of days. <laughs> That's exactly what she said to me. We're never going to have a time exactly when we're closed. Yeah. But I'm like, hmm, you know, 2020 comes around. I'm like, ah, I think you might be regretting that, uh, that conversation. Um, but who knows? Um, you know, what, couple things here i'm gonna i'm gonna you're gonna surprise you with a, with a question here in a minute nice. but uh, uh we'll, we'll we'll let this go here in a second but um what do you do like how do you train you know on the other side of it like when you are talking to c-suite or or anybody in, the, in in that area how do you train them into making um intelligent risk assessments or, or decisions so really what i i train c-suites on is i want them to make decisions period. And I want them to get comfortable making decisions when they don't have all the information. And I think that's, you know, the one risk when we continue to train on the same scenarios and everyone's ready for that scenario, and then COVID comes along or supply chain disruption comes along, they they don't know how to react. So the, the way I, I get people, you know, becoming resilient and, and making intelligent risk decisions, they have to be comfortable making decisions on incomplete information and they have to be comfortable changing their own decisions as they get more information. 
And that second part is hard for a lot of executives because they don't want to be seen as making mistakes. But it happens. It's two in the morning. We're on a conference bridge. You get some information. We have to act. You get different information. What you said before is now wrong. And that's that's one of the hardest things that that people people don't like to admit mistakes in general, executives especially. And you just have to get them comfortable with make decisions, make the best decision you can at that time and know that an hour later you may have to change course. And that's okay. Yeah, I mean, I I love the fact that um, we're seeing more um, business people uh, taking a look at the OODA loop uh, concept or as uh, Eric McNulty created um, at Harvard, at Harvard uh, with MPLI with the pop-doc loop, right? Yep. But that's the decision loop, right? You, you're in that decision loop. You make a decision, you observe how that decision is impactful or not, and then you can adjust that. And I think that if we have people that understand that um, and, and really adopt that, that others will go, okay, this makes sense. We're trying this out. Um, it's not really going the direction we need to go or more information is coming in, which makes this decision irrelevant. Um, and then we can move, uh, move that forward in a different direction to make, uh, to make proper uh, choices here. Uh, and again, you know, let's look at the um, um, you know, supply chain with the baby formula decisions that were made. Um, you know, it's interesting to see the FDA really going, oh, wait, you know, what, what are we doing here? What decisions do we have to change so we can, can uh, re, re, you know alleviate this issue, and then then the idea of being able to bring in baby formula from uh, Europe, um, I think is a, is which was before taboo or, or I don't know if it was against the law, but it just didn't happen. And they released that the ability um, making those small decisions makes it impactful yeah. uh, for everybody. So, and you need to be comfortable making decisions that aren't great decisions. So something that you would never do under blue sky, like you said, the FDA allowing uh, things they don't allow in the country beforehand, same thing with executives. Like, hey, sometimes the best decision you can make is still not a great decision. And (laughs) that's not, you know, that's just, that's okay. I had an executive say to me one time, well, if we made X decision, it was going to cost us a ton of money. Yeah, but it's better than going out of business. Right. You wouldn't make this decision under blue sky, but now in this particular case, you know, they had 40% of the raw materials tied to one vendor who went out of business. You've got to overpay yeah. to, to cover that up. And that's, that's not a great decision, but that's okay. Yeah. I, I interviewed um, uh, one of the weather organizations that help uh, businesses, specifically the oil companies uh, make decisions on shutting down refineries or not. Uh, when a storm is coming and uh, you, you know, you make a decision on one end, it's going to cost you millions of dollars. You make a decision on the other, it could, could cost you billions of dollars, you yep. know? So, so uh, yeah, this, this is real, real, real hard decisions that are being made by, uh, by very intelligent people. And uh, uh, it's, it definitely could, could make a difference in, in our lives too. Right. Because if you start shutting refineries down, well, we saw what the gas prices are happening. Right. So that impacts yeah, millions and, you- and millions of people. Living in Florida, you see that all the time with school districts. They have to decide to close before a hurricane hits. And so what happens is if they close and then the storm changes direction and they get all this grief, it's sunny out. Why'd you do that? But then if they don't, the worst thing you can do is close a school when the kids are already in school. How do you get them home? Parents are already at work. Uh, it's, it's a nightmare. So you have to, in those cases, make those decisions beforehand 
and just know that half the time you're going to get yelled at. So it's not a, it's not a great position to be in, but you're a leader. You have to make those decisions. So James, <laughs> one of the things that uh, I used to ask a long, a long, a long time ago, and, and I'm bringing it back and you were my first guest that I'm, I'm going to ask this question to. Excellent. Cause I know that you're well read. Uh, what book um, do you recommend or what books are you reading right now um, in, in regards to risk? So uh, right now I read a lot of biographies. Um, so I'm reading a, a book on Cornelius Vanderbilt, Commodore Vanderbilt. And I knew about his life story, high level Vanderbilt university made a ton of money, but I didn't realize um a lot of decisions he had made that he originally made his first fortune in steamships. And then he took a risk buying a tiny railroad and in the 1850s and 1860s realized the economy is changing. The United States is changing. He sold all his steamships and he went in all in on railroads. And that's where the, he made the bulk of his fortune and I find that interesting because most people would say, hey, I've been successful in this thing for 20 years. I know the market. I'm going to tell the market what to do. But he recognized that society was changing and he got out in front of it. So, wow. so it's almost like the buggy whip, right? Yeah. Um, where he went, he sold all his and went all in on cars. But definitely he was one of the largest steamship owners in the world, divested all of that. And went wow. all in on, on railroads, and that's what made the fortune. That's why we know his name today. Wow, it's amazing. That's that's a that's a that's a great story, and, and uh, it, it is it is awesome to look at the people who were successful in, uh, in their decision making process, um, and, and you can learn a lot from that. So I do appreciate I appreciate, it. James. If anybody wants to get a hold of you, how are they going to find you? Yeah, so I'm everywhere. Todd, uh, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn as uh, the James Green, and uh, IlluminateAdvisory.com is our website. Absolutely, James. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Todd. Hey, everybody. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for spending um, your morning with us or your afternoon, and and really, you know, getting deep into some of these conversations. I, you know, sometimes we wish we can go a little bit longer. Uh, but that being said. Yeah, I, I like the idea of, of reading the, the biographies of great uh, people who came before us, uh, learning from them. So, James, I appreciate uh, that suggestion as well. And everybody, until next time, follow us on your favorite podcast player or on YouTube um, or on LinkedIn and on Facebook. And until then, stay safe and stay hydrated. <laughs>